Well, number one is there, 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 there's going to be there's going to be an emphasis upon international events. The news media is going to pound it, pound it, pound it. The second thing is you're going to start to see a group or a person guilty of racism or something along those lines. They're going to start pounding on that. They want your attention over here. The third thing you're going to start to see is people being arrested for, for domestic terrorism. The fourth thing you're going to see, and this is what this is what I got to talk to the ladies about. It's what I call ancient hates, ancient madness, ancient revenge. When these things start to happen, people are going to start rioting. The EBT cards are going to shut down. Can you imagine what's going to happen in North St. Louis and St. Louis County what's when the EBT cards go down, when ATM machines don't work? Walmarts in Illinois already, and other places had some problems with that already. Think about that, what's going to happen. When, when, those, when the inner cities start to ignite, people are going to start killing people they don't like. Season 2, Episode 3, Oath Keepers, Part 2. Welcome to Capital Insurrection Report, a podcast dedicated to news and analysis about the attack on the Capitol on January 6, 2021, in Washington, D.C. I'm Scott Kuhn. The introduction to the show this week was provided by Sergeant Major Dan Page, a police officer who worked in the protests in Ferguson, Missouri, delivered during an assembled group of Oath Keepers in St. Louis back in 2014. During the speech, Page said any number of things, including, I don't trust anybody. I hate everybody. I hate y'all too. I hate everybody. I'm into diversity. I kill everybody. I don't care. He also made homophobic comments, claimed he had been to the place where Barack Obama was born and educated in Kenya, characterized President Obama as an illegal immigrant, and espoused various conspiracy theories, including the bit including this clip, wherein he projects a future race war in the United States. He attracted national attention when he threatened to arrest CNN's Don Lemon, who was reporting it on the scene at Ferguson back in 2014. Page was made to retire after the incident, and uh, these comments after all of that became public. But this is a really good example of the kind of ideas that the Oath Keepers were disseminating among themselves privately while publicly pretending to be a nonpartisan organization that only worked to preserve the public order. They would show up in various places and say, look, we're just here to provide you know, security. We don't pick sides. And then, of course, privately, it's something like, the global elites and the Illuminati are working together hand-in-hand hand to cause an economic collapse that will cause riots in the inner cities. And we know who that is, right? And they are going to attack the decent, hard-working people of this country. So crypto-racism, if not overt racism, right? And certainly, again, you know, from the very beginning, uh, homophobia and misogyny also rampant. Now... Last week's episode was the first of my two-part ep episode series on the Oath Keepers. So if you've landed here, go back and listen to last week's episode first, because I'm examining and criticizing the folk ideology of the Oath Keepers movement in a mainly chronological fashion. And although there have been a few interesting developments since the last episode, in the interest of getting this episode out in something like a timely manner and to keep it at a more manageable length, I'm going to be saving those developments for the next episode. But that doesn't mean I'm going to skip the overall numbers of cases as they progress through the system. So 
Let's look at those numbers, as always, sourced from Sedition Tracker. We've had 734 individuals charged, which is an increase of nine since our last episode. 356 indicted, an increase of only two since our last episode. So a little, you know, slow down there. Three deceased, one dismissal, as always. Um, well, <laughs> there have been some people who may have died who, who were never even charged or arrested, but uh, three that we know about. 203 convictions, an increase of 25 since our last episode, which is really, really amazing uh, progress. Those are, of course, plea bargains that you know, have moved through the system. And finally, 82 sentencings, an increase of three since our last episodes. And of course, many of those 203 convictions are going to be moving uh, rather rapidly through the sentencing process. And you're going to have people either reporting or not reporting, uh, whether it be into federal custody uh, or with federal probation. So in the last episode, in addition to the usual recap of events that took a little bit longer than usual, simply because a lot has been happening, we explored the ideas and the ideology of the Oath Keepers at their inception. Using an article from SWAT magazine, I came to the, that was, you know, the thing that first brought Stuart Rose to attention back in 2008. I came to the conclusion that the main purpose of Rhodes's project in that particular essay was creating a sense of victimhood in his readers and identifying a domestic enemy for the purpose of defining a kind of politics that sees political struggle as one that is increasingly fraught with the potential for violence. And I use the term othering to describe his agenda in developing this kind of politics. This, of course, is not my original idea. I'm sure it's probably been applied to the Oath Keepers even before. Uh, the idea of othering has been applied elsewhere in political science, political philosophy, sociology, across the social sciences and humanities. And my underlying analysis of the operation of far-right political thought uh, relies heavily on the work of Ger the German political scientist and member of the Frankfurt School, Franz Neumann. Um, so, you know, if you have a chance to read his magisterial 1944 takedown of Nazism and the tra his tracking of its historical and ideological development, I strongly encourage you to do so. Now, in this process of othering, many of the things that uh, seem to incite Rhodes's ire are, are things that, that he just made up, right? Uh, and this is very similar, in fact, to what the Nazis did in their rise, creating uh, enemies um, using things that they've just made up, kinds of blood libel. Now, I know that a lot of the current analysis of Trumpism and far-right political violence more generally relies on developing an understanding of, of IT. Um, I'm not going to be developing that very much here, but I, I will leave this thought for you uh, that you can, you know, have it in, in the background as I talk about the, the development of the ideology. Uh, basically, information technology, particularly social media, is developing uh, throughout the course of the militia movement, right? Uh, you have the murder bombing in 1995 all the way up to the present day. And so that does change how things happen, right? That changes how these ideas are disseminated and it makes it, you know, more possible and greatly facilitates uh, and, you know, the informational structures and the, the technological structures that are associated with them also change over this time. Um, I'm not really going to focus on that, but, you know, just 
sort of let that know that that's operating in the background. The modern paramilitary movement happens at a time when you see technological transfer, transformation, and it is a participant in that. So you have uh, Mike Vanderbilt uh, with his Sipsy Street Irregulars blog. Um, you know, he founds his organization, even though his, his involvement with uh, so-called militia, what I like to call paramilitary gang activities, long predates Rhodes in, the, in that respect. Um, you know, three percenters are founded officially uh, just a year uh, after before the, you know, before, sorry, the Oath Keepers uh, are founded. And so you have it moving from these sort of really, really quite sort of mid-90s looking. I mean, his uh, and, and the Oath Keepers as well, the, the websites, if you look at the Wayback Machine, which we will hear, uh, they are, you know, they were they were looking uh, kind of shopworn uh, even at, at the very beginning, um, and there's some improvement as time goes on. Um, but the technological development, you know, kind of drives the movement I itself in some some kind of interesting ways. Again, I'm going to focus more on the ideas uh, more than you know this these technological changes. Nonetheless, you know, I want to let you know that that's that's working right. So it's part of this process where you know winds up you have these bloggers you know um uh, guys like Rhodes and, and Vanderbilt uh to the the meme lords right that we saw increasingly in the run-up uh, to uh 2016 the alt-right and the meme lords and Pepe the Frog uh and this kind of weaponized irony that that's used and is still being used uh to what we're having today where the, the way of the future is this kind of narrow casting focused on developing a cancel-proof infrastructure that's able to combine the reach of social media while also maintaining operational security uh, for uh, attacks, terrorist attacks like January 6th, uh, and also, uh, you know, to eliminate the risk of deplatforming uh, for these kinds of, of groups that can occur in the wake of their, their more uh, problematic political activities. So there are probably people who are better at doing that kind of analysis than I am, but I just wanted to let you know that, you know, that's running in, in the background behind all of this. To my mind, the ideas come first. Maybe for other people that perhaps the technology might come first. I just wanted to acknowledge the technology plays a cruel, you know, a critical role in disseminating the, these ideas. Um, but I, you know, I think that, the, you know, you can track the development of ideas uh, without considering as much the technological change. Just know the technological change is part and parcel of it. All right, so what I'd like to do is to um, tie this Manichaean Oath Keepers ideology to the course of action that Rhodes develops from 2009 to the present. And I'm, I'm, I know he has a background before 2009. I'm, I'm not going to get to that. I'm just going to focus on uh, the things that, that are written and the activities of the group itself rather than uh, doing a life history of Elmer Stewart Rhodes. So always underlying this ideology that he develops, there are, are four things that I suggest are caught up in the development of this Oath Keepers movement. First is a demonization of vicious domestic political enemies. He describes these vicious domestic pl political enemies. Uh, you know, it's not enough to win the, the election, right? They, the, this is an existential threat. And so he creates this existential threat around, you know, relatively mainstream political figures, right? Such as Hillary Clinton and Barack Obama. Uh, and basically, they are communists. And so we must be, you know, engaged 
in uh, this, this kind of warfare, right? Which is another thing. So second, the exaltation of and uh, reification of the class of American warriors. This American warrior class, he frames it as, a, as kind of a, a warrior ideology, and he speaks about it, writes about it in explicit terms. These warrior, this warrior class, they, they are both victims and heroes, right? In much the same way that uh, the Nazi party were, you know, the Aryan race were depicted as both victims and heroes. Rhodes does the same thing here with, you know, so-called patriots. Apocalyptic millenarianism, the third thing, which is long a feature of the far right. So there are different kinds of millenarianism. This millenarianism is apocalyptic. Uh, you know, it, and you, you, there are different kinds of, you know, um, different versions of this, right? That you can just take directly from Christian theology, right? You know, the question of where we are in the end times. But that's what it is. It's a secularized version of the end times. This is Hal Lindsey, but replacing the Bible with politics, right? So this is a secularization of these political concepts in a way that would be familiar, and I know I bring everything back to Carl Schmitt, to Carl Schmitt, right? For Carl Schmitt, all significant political ideas and concepts are merely secularized versions of uh, theological ideas and concepts. That's from uh, his work, Political Theology. And so ultimately, you know, this movement has an apocalyptic understanding of politics and the belief that we have either entered into uh, or are currently in the midst of the apocalypse, right? And, you know, the, the writing itself is ambiguous, right? So, you know, there's premillennialism and postmillennialism and theology. That's certainly all there uh, within the Oath Keeper's ideology. You know, where we are with regard to the process, whether it's already begun or this is something that's going to be ramp ramping up, largely doesn't really matter. Some version of the end times is happening. And finally, the fourth thing is a rhetorical posture. A rhetorical posture that is publicly anti-racist and nonpartisan, but engages in a kind of a dual dialogue uh, or a kind of, um, you know, esoteric dialogue. So publicly anti-racist, nonpartisan, just there to, you know, be a, a quote, good militia and uh, provide for the public order, not taking sides. But internally, internally, they're always maintaining uh, a, a in-group dialogue that is neither racist nor nonpartisan. Once you have access to just, and it's not even that they're hiding it, right? It's the public facing website has this stuff on it. Um, but nonetheless, just the, the, the assumption that, you know, somehow this is all invisible and Stuart Rhodes's public pronouncements, uh, you know, to be anti-racist and nonpartisan are going to suffice. Um, never mind the fact that, you know, you've got Dan Page right there having his comments recorded and people posting it to YouTube, right? That's, you know, somehow there's this idea that that's plausibly deniable. So those are the four things it does. Demonization, creation of a class of enemies, the uh, exaltation of a class of American warriors, ap apocalyptic millenarianism, and this double dialogue, a rhetorical posture that's anti-racist, nonpartisan, but in reality, entirely racist and entirely partisan. And as time goes on, this 
changes, right? So it doesn't just end with the SWOT article in 2008. Uh, rather, over time, the, it gets more and more like this, right? You have, it becomes more apocalyptic, more millenarian, millenarian. Uh, it becomes more uh, focused on the other. The othering intensifies uh, and the propensity to see politics as, um, you know, something that has, is fraught with the potential for violence also intensifies. Now, the reason why this is happening at this particular period in time is because um, Rhodes is dealing with the same things that Mike Vanderbilt was dealing with uh, with the three percenters. And again, they're responding to the same kinds of events, have the same kind of pressures at the same time. In a post-Murrah building bombing world, the problem for them is how do you keep a reactionary paramilitary movement going in the face of uh, the unpopularity of violent white supremacy and how you deal with the baggage that the word militia carries with it. Um, their, I mean, their, their, their solution is that while they, they still use the word militia in terms of authorizing their acts, you know, uh, they're, they're characterizing them more as a, a movement, right? You know, three percenter, it's not three percenter militia. It's not Oath Keepers militia, uh, that they drop that aspect from the name. Although I, I will talk about their, their use and their relationship with the, the idea of militias. And they, they managed to do this by adopting the apocalyptic narrative of something like the, the Turner Diaries, which was, you know, uh, part of the, this uh, fake story that motivated Timothy McVeigh. I'm not saying that it's fake that it was motivating Timothy McVeigh. I'm saying that there was this uh, apocalyptic racist story that was told in Turner Diaries that uh, becomes, you know, one of the primary motivations for McVeigh and many others like him in the militia movement of the, uh, the 90s and the early aughts. So uh, the apocalyptic narrative is still there, but they're trying to leave at least the overt racism behind, trying to control it, trying to maintain uh, some kind of discipline over how this uh, information, at least with regard to the public-facing aspect of their activities, is concerned. In the end, of course, it doesn't really matter. This uh, effort to eliminate overt racism, uh, you know, it's, it's not successful. It can't be successful in the age in which we live, right? There are digital receipts. Now, Rhodes was very fond of citing his experience working for Ron Paul and oftentimes borrowed libertarian rhetoric. But it's very important to recognize how Rhodes departs from mainstream libertarianism in the Oath Keeper's folk ideology that he creates. Rhodes begins with the supposition that humans are naturally antagonistic animals and that the nature of politics is inherently conflictual, so much so that he sees politics as fraught with the ever-present danger of coercion and force. Now, the opposition to a coercive state is a common thread in libertarian politics, but the willingness to deploy coercion against political opponents isn't, again, in mainstream libertarianism. The word that's used in political theory to describe the politics uh, that in Rhodes's worldview is agonal politics. We call this agonal politics. And agonal politics sees politics as inherently conflictual. The foremost theory, uh, theorist of agonism today is the Belgian political theorist Chantal Mouffe, who is a post-Marxist who relies heavily on the work of Carl Schmitt in her own work and as I probably mentioned before, of course, Schmidt was the subject of my own dissertation, political philosophy. Uh, so, you know, I know you, you always wind up seeing your own stuff 
uh, in, in the world. But I'm going to submit that when you look at the folk ideology that's created by Stuart Rhodes, Elmer Stuart Rhodes, um, this concept of agonal politics is important. But I'm going to go down, you know, not go down that particular rabbit hole too much. The key point is to emphasize that Rhodes isn't proposing just some generic theory of agonal politics. He's proposing a particular kind of agonal politics. Um, one that, you know, I could, I'm going to call it an inversion of a different Carl, not Carl Schmidt this time, uh, Carl von Clausewitz, who famously described war as the continuation of politics by other means. For Rhodes and the Oath Keepers, Politics is a continuation of war by other means. So an agonal understanding of politics doesn't necessarily lead to a militarized politics. But it does for the Oath Keepers. And it does when you understand politics as an existential conflict, right? That's the point of this creation of a domestic political enemy that Rose does in his Oath Keepers folk ideology. Uh, if you have, you know... A politics that is based on deliberative democracy and discourse, you can have an agile politics, but that's not what Rhodes is doing. That's not his project. The key point here is that his vision of agile politics is utterly at odds with his libertarian rhetoric. Um, if you define your domestic and political opponents as an existential threat, you're not going to wind up at libertarian conclusions. What Rhodes does is to develop his folk political ideology uh, by grafting libertarianism onto an authoritarian rootstock. So just as with a plant, the graft is ultimately rejected. And this, this grafting, this failure to graft, is a natural process as inevitable as a biological process of development. So proceeding from this you know, premise of militarized agonism, you can't help but inevitably discard these libertarian language, these libertarian elements. I'm, I'm not personally a libertarian. This is probably I'm probably not the best spokesperson for this. Nonetheless, what he does is is a fundamental misrepresentation. It is an error, despite his experience with Ron Paul and his use of certain libertarian buzzwords and concepts to describe him in any meaningful sense as libertarian. So eventually, we see the content of the Oath Keepers website. Uh, with these libertarian elements in the beginning, uh, just kind of die off. And it's, it's replaced overall, as we'll see, with nativism, xenophobia, and increasingly calls for political violence. And those were there all along. They were present in the SWAT magazine article from last episode. Uh, but Rhodes was always careful to camouflage these elements as far as his overall polemical strategy to depict the Oath Keepers as an ordinary voluntary association rather than an extremist paramilitary. Once you redefine politics as a conflict between free and equal people operating in a liberal, deliberative, pluralistic discourse, um, but, you know, it just throw it out the window, right? You know, that's the ordinary liberal way of looking at things. And I'm, I'm using liberal in terms of classical liberal. And you know, liber, libertarianism emerges out of classical liberalism, of course. So once you redefine politics to ditch the idea of uh, free and equal people operating in a deliberative pluralistic discourse, um, you impose and you know, you do is what Rose does, which is to 
impose a, a politics of a virtuous category of worthy people who are locked in existential conflict with a vicious category of, of vicious people, right, of bad people. Um, and you also create a nostalgia for the past when your vision of politics was dominant and the, the other was subordinate to you. Uh, and you combine this with apocalyptic millenarianism your politics is inevitably going to develop into a variety of fascism. And you can track that if you go to the Wayback Machine and look at the Oathkeepers uh, website, oathkeepers.org, although I, you know, I hate to send people there, uh, although I hopefully understand it, it may be changing uh, in the not-too-distant future. Um, you wind up just increasingly, just the, the facade of libertarianism is dropped, and you wind up with nothing but uh, xenophobic nationalism, uh, coupled with this fascist paramilitary movement. So, to my mind, that's the overarching theory that I am operating with in looking at the the actual content uh, of the Oath Keepers, you know, political ideas, this folk ideology. The libertarian rhetoric was always kind of window dressing, even if Rhodes himself may have sincerely believed in some elements of libertarian thought. It's similar to the way that uh, paramilitary gangs have used the word militia in an effort to legitimize themselves. Militias are recognized under state law, and also they're in the Second Amendment of the Constitution. They are recognized as a legitimate instrument of state authority. Paramilitary gangs take this recognition and weaponize it to confer upon themselves a legitimacy that they don't deserve. An anti-government militia ought to be an oxymoron in any properly constitutional understanding. Yet they're you know, continuously using uh, bits and pieces of law and the Constitution to justify what is, in effect, a, a volunteer terrorist organization. Now, in doing this, it was very lucky for Rhodes and Vanderbilt and other people in this paramilitary movement that we had had the terrorist attacks of 9-11 in 2001. That's when federal law enforcement really takes their eye off the ball with regard to domestic far-right political violence and paramilitaries. I'm not going to go into the whole history of that, but the government have, since Waco and Ruby Ridge, tried to avoid uh, that kind of public relations fiasco. Uh, and that's often meant that these hardline, uh, mainly white paramilitary organizations are treated with a degree of deference completely unavailable to other groups. In the minds of the Oath Keepers, Rhodes, and other people who take part in this, the idea of this, the Patriot, gives them a kind of a special status logically prior to the state. If there's an undying national spirit of patriotism and they are its true heirs, then they are prior to the state because it was patriot political violence that made the Constitution possible. Ultimately, if you take this far enough, this is a justification for political violence that's not subject to the limitations of the state. Rhodes puts this in a negative term, uh, but it's implicit that these strictures are voluntary. Those ten orders we will not obey are voluntary restrictions that they've placed on their own political violence. Consequently, anything not included is permitted, of course. And if they come to a point where they are politically dominant, they are free to ditch all of that. They make explicit promises about not rounding up citizens and putting them into camps, uh, but there's nothing in there about not committing voter intimidation, for example. And in fact, they were accused of doing that uh, in New Jersey and elsewhere. 
Um, you know, having armed paramilitary gangs acting effectively as poll watchers is an extraordinarily bad idea. So my central thesis, which I developed in the last episode and I'll develop further here, is that the narrative roads used to justify the actions of the Oath Keepers was created entirely in bad faith. It was a polemical device designed to put distance between the Oath Keepers and the more obviously racist and fascistic paramilitary movements that had developed in the course of the last three decades. This was an effort that would serve to bolster recruitment, to attract people who wouldn't ordinarily join an overtly reactionary organization, but who might be willing to join one that was specifically created to be a kinder, gentler paramilitary. It also had the effect of numbing law enforcement and even the press. Although Rhodes never really did much professionally with his law degree, he was able to use much of what he learned at Yale to good effect and presented his organization as one that was grounded in classical liberal political thought, as opposed to something like, let's say, the uh, racist conspiratorialism of the Turner Diaries. That kind of racist conspiratorialism always remains as a subtext, even when it's not made explicit, as it sometimes is, right? As you saw with uh, Sergeant Major Page. But Rhodes is able to grow this movement and insulate it from law enforcement and public attention by creating the myth of the Oath Keepers as a group intended to protect civil liberties from the heavy hand of the state. The rhetorical strategy that Rhodes uses here is a bit different than the one that was developed a few years later by the so-called alt-right. The alt-right would openly call for fascism and then claim that they were doing it ironically, or you know they were only kidding, uh, they only wanted to, you know, let's say, kill their political opponents in Minecraft, right? Um, with them, there's a, you know, the Oath Keepers, there's this overt message and this, uh, you know, sort of esoteric message, if you will. Uh, this one that they don't need to say explicitly. It's implied or left semi-concealed as an in-group narrative that doesn't really enter the public consciousness around the activities of the group. So there's this overt message that appears serious and unironic, but the implied message uh, needs to be inferred from context or by w looking at what the Oath Keepers do versus what they say, or by looking at communications that are meant to be internal as opposed to external. So uh, the example of, you know, going back to Ferguson, right? Uh, in Ferguson, the Oath Keepers uh, claimed to be supporting BLM at one point, but in actuality, they were up on the roofs and they were there to quote, protect property and not really in any meaningful way in solidarity with the Black Lives Matter movement. So uh, you can compare that to what they did in the Bundy standoff, where they're unambiguously in support of the ability of the Bundy family, and that's readily apparent. Uh, in Ferguson, they claimed they were there to provide, at one point, security for InfoWars, but if you look at the stories that InfoWars was actually running about Ferguson, that's, that's really, really suspicious, right? So a lot of people in the mainstream media bought the lies that the Oath Keepers were telling about their goals in Ferguson and elsewhere. This disinformation served as a screen for an escalating program of confrontation. And that program of confrontation ultimately winds up just kind of uh, subsuming ideology. The, the, you know, the, the ideology, the actual content, the, the beliefs of the movement don't even matter. It, it, toward the end, it's just about the confrontation, the paramilitary gang activity itself. And uh, for you know, the latter part, parts of the development of the Oath Keepers movement, Rhodes largely gives up writing altogether. The only time, as we'll see, he winds up writing is, is to ask for money, 
to support these confrontational strategies. Um, and uh, he outsources the actual content to uh, places like uh, Infoworlds and uh, WorldNet daily, right? So, uh, you know, it's, again, that, and that's, that's, that means something. That's that significant that, you know, you know, ideas, you know, supposedly come first, but then, you know, not really, right? He winds up just saying, these are good enough. I'm not going to bother writing about these. Instead, I'm going to focus on confronting the government. So, you know, I mean, again, you look back at Ferguson, people in the movement said that they didn't want armed paramilitaries there. And, you know, uh, the Oath Keepers didn't listen. Um, all the Oath Keepers had to do was uh, just leave the guns at the hotel and join the protesters. That, that's not what they did. And they just decided to appear as an armed gang from outside the community. Uh, and, you know, neither the protesters nor the police uh, really uh, wind up ultimately wanting them there. And you have Rhodes saying one thing in public, but then the Oath Keepers saying different things at the grassroots level, right? Listening to speeches from guys like, you know, Dan Page uh, and saying different things on the website as well. So for most of their existence, Rhodes and the other Oath Keepers were absolutely adamant in the, saying that they shouldn't be characterized as a partisan group. They're nonpartisan. And they objected to the idea that they were either right wing or far right even though those would sometimes appear in the press co co coverage. Uh, again, the first article that brought Rose to the national spotlights compared Hillary Clinton to Hitler, called her Hitlery. But uh, that just gets erased, right? That, that just never happened. They were always at war with East Asia. Rhodes was always careful to cite what he saw as the excesses and abuses of the national security state under the Bush administration. But if you're going to be a nonpartisan paramilitary, it's curious that the Oath Keepers didn't form under Bush. Uh, they were actively anti-government only under Obama. And then they become pro-government under Trump, right, with their activities and, uh, you know, the entire content of the propaganda that they, they spew forth at their members. Nonetheless, you know, especially during the Obama years, the Oath Keepers and Rhodes himself would get really huffy when people would call them on this. So next, um, I'm going to read a section from an interview with uh, Elmer Stewart Rhodes with Radley Balco that was put out by Reason in February of 2011. And it's fairly typical of the way Rhodes would say, no, no, we're not racist and we're nonpartisan. Um, and so, I, you know, it's necessary, uh, unfortunately, to, to go a little bit into the, the, the exact language Rhodes uses. So here's a question uh, from Balco, uh, writing for Reason Magazine. Quote, there's one criticism of your group that's similar to those directed at the Tea Parties. You said that Bush was just as hostile to the Constitution as Obama has been. Indeed, that most of the worst executive power grabs began under Bush. So why did Oath Keepers spring up only after Obama took office? Good question. Here we go. Here's Rhodes' reply. Quote, I just hadn't gotten the idea yet. I got the idea during the 2008 election campaign. I worked for Ron Paul during the primary, and when it became clear that he wasn't going to get the nomination, I started to think about what I wanted to do next. And that's when the idea came to me that I wanted to do something involving the military and the police. And that that was no matter who became president. At the time, we didn't know if it was going to be McCain, Obama, or Hillary Clinton. But it's true. All of this began or really started to get worse 
under Bush. That's when you had this wave of unconstitutional federal power. In particular, I was worried about this claim that the president could detain American citizens as unlawful enemy combatants. A president who could make that claim assumes powers that could be used in so many other ways too. I wrote a paper on that issue while I was at Yale Law School during the Bush administration, which actually won the Yale Prize for Best Paper on the Bill of Rights. I was an outspoken critic of Bush then. I had a blog at the time that was very critical of Bush and his assumption of unconstitutional powers. I called the neocons in the Bush administration national security New Dealers. They expanded the power of the federal government at least as much as the New Deal did, but they did it through the lens of national security. The warrantless spying was unconstitutional. The detention of Jose Pazia was unconstitutional. The detentions without trial were unconstitutional. Most of the powers Bush claimed were unconstitutional. But now you have Obama, who's not only renounced those powers, no, excuse me, who's not only not renounced those powers, but has expanded them. He also now claims that the power to assassinate American citizens his administration deems enemy combatants with no oversight. That's just frightening. At this point, I do really wish I had started Oath Keepers during the Bush administration. It would have been a good test. My guess is that I'd started with a lot of liberals joining up, and you'd have seen conservatives and neocons howling that I am a traitor. I think it's just human nature and the cycle of politics. When the left is in power, they forget about the Constitution because it limits what they can do. So they characterize people who stand by the Constitution as reactionary or dangerous. But then when they are out of power, they were citing the Constitution all the time. They were quoting Ben Franklin about sacrificing liberty for security. This, he goes on, uh, this leads to an interesting follow-up question from Balco. Quote, do you have any leftists or left libertarians in your membership? Rhodes. We have some, but they're few and far between right now. I wish we had more. And I suspect that when we get a Republican president again, we'll get more members who identify with the left. That's, end quote, that's this is pure gaslighting, right? The next time a Republican did win the presidency, of course, it was Donald Trump. And the anti-government rhetoric just somehow didn't seem to apply to them. Instead, you see the Oath Keepers flip and stop maintaining the pretenses that they had once assiduously upheld. BLM was bad all along. Who knew? It was integral to Rhodes' overall project. The fact that the Oath of Enlistment features the phrase, quote, against all enemies, foreign or domestic, gave him the leeway he needed to weaponize the Oath of Enlistment against domestic political opponents. That was never intended, by the way. In our system, Ordinary political disputes are meant to be settled through elections, through policymaking by responsible elected officials, and occasionally judicial processes. But Rhodes uses this single word in the Oath of Enlistment to transform ordinary fellow citizens into enemies who are un-American and who pose an existential threat to the way of life in the United States. And he does so in the name of the Founding Fathers. And the very logic that Rhodes uses to this end is profoundly ahistorical. Rhodes endorses the right to secede in his Ten Orders We Will Not Obey, but the whole reason the Oath of Enlistment includes the phrase foreign or domestic is because Congress changed the Oath of Enlistment in 1862 to reflect the reality of the circumstances of the Civil War. 
As intellectually lazy as Rhodes is, this basic fact is something of which he must have been aware. And so it's also an example, perhaps a central example, of the kind of bad faith under which he operates, right? Obama, domestic political enemy, must be opposed. The state is bad. Trump comes along. All of a sudden, the state is okay. So you see, you know, what Rhodes is saying back to the press back in 2011, uh, what he's saying in the Reason interview, uh, and also what he's saying at the time on the Oath Keepers website. Um, then if you look at the actual content on the website today, you'll find missing pages. Uh, this has all been taken down for some reason. Uh, there's a link to Stuart Rhodes's Legal Defense Fund and a place to donate to the Oath Keepers, but that, that's about it. If you enter a search term in the search function, you'll get nothing. Um, but, you know, thanks to the Wayback Machine, of course, you can still access all that Oath Keepers content and you can review it in light of recent events. And when you do so, you see it tells a very different story from the story that Rhodes liked to tell the media at the time and what he's still, uh, well, he's in prison now, but what he still likes to say. Uh, he was just so confident that the media wouldn't check the actual content of the official website. And, uh, you know, I mean, I know I was doing it uh, rather obsessively at the time. And, of course, it certainly didn't fool the people who were interested in researching uh, anti-government paramilitaries, right? I mean, you, they got all this explicitly reactionary content. Um, and so, you know, for most people, at least who did, you know, even basic research, this idea uh, was, was just risible. So once you go to the Wayback Machine and check uh, the Oath Keepers uh, chronological site, you'll find that, you know, despite Rhodes's denials and major media outlets, the main content of the OathKeepers.org website was hyperpartisan attacks on Democrats, hyperpartisan attacks on the left and socialists. You know, even Joe Biden, right, you know, winds up, you know, somehow being socialist. So, for example, in 2010, they reprinted an article from WorldNet Daily entitled, America Denounces Obamacare Threat. His bullying and arrogance won't stop. And this article begins with the question, Will it soon be the USSA, the United Socialist States of America? Now, again, this is an attack on Obamacare, on the Affordable Care Act, uh, on the ACA. And the odd thing about this claim is that, you know, the Oath Keepers has always uh, claimed to um, be primarily uh, composed of members of the military and police and uh, first responders, i.e. government employees. These are people who enjoy government-controlled, government-run health care. In fact, they are used to a far more socialist system of government-run health care than anything that was, you know, in the ACA, which had, you know, things such as um, private insurance marketplaces. At the end of this article, uh, which again, Rose just, just reposts from World Net Daily, credits them, reposts the article, and he appends his own comments to the end. Uh, he makes some comments uh, about slavery from Frederick Douglass and George Washington, right? The ACA is slavery. And, well, they weren't saying about the ACA, but he applied it to the ACA. And then he offers this, quote, I think it is entirely fitting to put the struggle in that context and to draw the direct, direct analogy to chattel slavery. Just because a plantation owner promises to provide room and board to patch you up so as long as you are useful to him, does not make you any less an asset among the other assets on his plantation, among his cattle, 
so you could not expect to be treated any differently, end quote. I mean, despite the fact that, you know, this somehow implies that, that slavery was, was voluntary, right? Um, he's got this public claim that the Oath Keepers won't accept members who are overt racist. That's pretty overtly racist, right? It is racist to compare the first black president's signature policy proposal, a health care plan originally based on a proposal put forward by the Heritage Foundation, to chattel slavery. This is either extremely bad faith or it shows that Rhodes is an exceptionally poor judge of what is and is not racist, right? Now, I'm not racist, but Obama's policies are exactly the same thing as slavery. It's absolutely appalling. Um, but it also shows he knows what he's doing, right? You know, he's not decrying race or racism. At the same time, you know, he must know on some level that his followers are pretty racist. So he's throwing them this red meat. Our first black president is trying to impose essentially the plantation on people, the system on people by, by you know, giving them health care. I mean, it's illogical, but, you know, they they eat that kind of thing up, right? Yeah, despite the fact that, you know, he can't be a Klan member and join, but, uh, you know, the, the rhetoric itself is really overtly racist. As I was going through a lot of these old uh, Oath Keepers web pages, uh, I was struck by how much of it I read at the time. Um, you know, I, I remembered a lot, of, a lot of these articles, and they haven't improved with age. Now, I was also struck by something that Dakota Adams, who's Rhodes' eldest son, said in the podcast interview that I linked to in the show notes last time, which is that Rhodes is fundamentally lazy. And when you look at all the written material that was published under Rhodes' name on the Oath Keepers website, um, yeah, that claim that Dakota Adams makes makes a lot of sense. There's really not that much there, there. Uh, if you just go back and look at his byline and compare it to, let's say, Mark, Mike Vanderbo's obsessive blogging, he's far less prolific. And it also strikes me as laughable that anyone ever took the Oath Keepers' claims of nonpartisanship seriously for even a moment. Going back to the Balco interview, uh, I think he did a fair job of trying to ask Rhodes some of the right questions, but I'm not sure that he'd read the Oath Keepers' website, uh, just perhaps the reporting on the Oath Keepers. Why does Rhodes even care about the ACA, particularly when most military veterans already have access to more comprehensive, even socialistic, government-run health care than that which is provided by the insurance exchanges uh, under the ACA? That article I just cited was on the Oath Keepers website at the time of the interview uh, with Balco, uh, and he doesn't call him on it. And it's remarkable that what Rhodes wrote in that article is just really parroting the kind of screeds you could have found elsewhere in right-wing media uh, at the same time, or today for that matter. I chose this example because it's, it's not even remotely related to the kinds of things that the Oath Keepers claim to care about, Second Amendment issues, things like that. And it shows the complete lack of seriousness and the intent to mislead in the claims that they're somehow nonpartisan. You know, when in fact what they're doing is they're demonizing a perfectly ordinary policy proposal as somehow being exactly the same as chattel slavery. We're not talking about rounding up Americans and putting them into camps. We're not talking about laying siege to American cities or any of the other apocalyptic fantasies that, that Rose likes to write about in his Ten Orders Will Not Obey. 
This is just a system of exchanges and subsidies for healthcare, along with an expansion of Medicaid that was never fully implemented anyway, mainly because it required the cooperation of Republicans at the state level, and of course that never happened. So for all the rhetoric about FEMA camps or potential authoritarian danger from the state, this is just absurdly like the kind of things that other conservatives were saying at the time. Uh, Ron Paul could have written it. And as Rhodes himself, you know, never seems to be even bothered by the question of why it is that his constituency should care about government-run health care. Rhodes liked to claim that most of his people are veterans. So, you know, guess what? If you really think that government-run health care infringes on your liberty, don't go to the Veterans Administration. Don't go to the VA. Don't use TRICARE. He never thinks about that for a moment. Put your money where your mouth is. Pay for your health care in the private sector in cash. That's the kind of program you would expect from someone who's actually libertarian. But Rose just uses this as an opportunity to demonize Obama as, you know, some kind of slaveholder. This reveals that one of the central hypocrisies behind the Oath Keepers, which is that Rhodes and the other members are massively disingenuous when it comes to their anti-government rhetoric. If you don't like the government, don't join the military, the police, or the fire department. All these people are government employees with government benefits. If government is oppressive, you should liberate yourself from being a government employee. You are voluntarily putting yourselves under the thumb of the man. And although Rhodes's military career appears to have lasted no longer than 18 months, many other Oath Keepers seem to have done their 20 years, earned a pension and benefits, to which they're entitled, right? Uh, but then, oftentimes, they would then turn around and get jobs in the state, the local, or the federal government. So this is a core hypocrisy that we find in the Oath Keepers and other core, you know, corners of the, the so-called patriot movement. And it somehow never gets addressed. If the government is oppressive, go ahead, fly, be free. Go into the free market where no one was going to be offering you those socialistic government-run VA benefits or socialistic government-defined benefit uh, contribution, you know, pensions. So according to Rhodes, the ACA is slavery the government is tyrannical. Uh, you, you know, the solution isn't to arm yourself. The solution is to stop cashing the checks. If you're really opposed to socialism, stop cashing the checks. Um, by the way, that is, that's Kuhn's Law, right? It's an aphorism that I created a couple of decades ago. The proper formulation of which is this. Conservatives in the United States oppose socialism until the government sends them a check. Then they endorse it. So every time that that is deposited, I realize, you know, usually by direct deposit nowadays, uh, well, not even usually, uh, it's mandatory, I believe, um, they're endorsing it, right? They endorse getting checks from the government. Uh, they just, you know, don't want the government to tell them what to do. I don't know. I mean, again, the, the whole premise of the organization is they're composed of people who take orders. At any rate, this particular article garnered a lot of attention on the Oath Keepers website, the one about the Obamacare, the ACA. Um, that, that's part of why I chose it. There are 49 comments in total, which was a lot for one of Rhodes's news pieces, even though, again, this is just a, a World Net Daily piece that he's then added like six sentences to at the bottom. In the comments section, you can really see how Oath Keepers react to the strategy of, of othering of defining domestic political opponents as a mortal enemy. Now, one of the, one of the comments, interestingly, does uh, talk about how they have a pre-existing condition, and in fact, they would benefit 
from the ACA. So kudos to, to that commenter. Um, but most of the other ones are absolutely just, you know, full square behind the, 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 the analogy that uh, Rhodes creates. One anonymous poster said this, quote, Are you people all talk? You say you want to keep your oath? Since when did the Constitution give the government the authority to force anyone to buy a good or service as a condition of life? These are the damned enemies. In plain sight. Are you blind? They just happen to be of the domestic variety. End quote. So again, you know, call for domestic, right, domestic enemies. That's a reference to the oath of enlistment. Or oath of enlistment, perhaps. Uh, and, you know, the, the response to, to someone getting health care from the government uh, should be armed insurrection, apparently. Another comment, Drew R. wrote, quote, Mass noncompliance should do the trick. They cannot take us all as long as we stand together against them and do not do what they want us to do out of fear. Get in touch with your county sheriffs and demand that they refuse to arrest citizens for not complying with unconstitutional laws. Insist they arrest federal agents intent on enforcing unconstitutional laws. That includes IRS agents, U.S. Marshals, BATF, and DEA agents, Department of Homeland Security, dot, 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 dot. Uh, the ellipsis, right? The commonly overused right-wing ellipsis because they, they cannot seemingly complete a thought. So kind of interesting, right? Now it's come out that Rhodes hadn't paid taxes uh, since 2007. Uh, you've got people saying, well, don't comply with unconstitutional laws. Well, we know Rhodes at this time, of course, was himself uh, not even engaging in tax avoidance, just wasn't filing returns. And here's, here's another comment from another anonymous poster. What is really going on? Colon. And then just the link to Infowars.com. So uh, it's interesting. That's in the comments section, right? Now, later on, there's going to be uh, articles just posted from Infowars. He's already using WorldNet Daily. And later on, uh, they also start using Infowars as well. So that's the basic pattern of what you see. Public declarations of nonpartisanship, but on the actual website, nothing but partisan screeds that denigrate Democrats, uh, that, that claim they're all socialists, uh, claim that the left are domestic enemies, and there are links in the comments section to direct people to ever more extreme sources such as InfoWars. This is part of that overall project, right? Number one, demonization, demonization of a domestic political enemy. This is a systematic redefinition of politics as a politics against domestic political foes who are not to be regarded as fellow citizens, despite the public rhetoric, but rather as domestic enemies to be destroyed. This is the politics of enmity that is inherent in fascism, the creation of new enemies to justify fantasies of violence, actual preparation for violence, and ultimately the violence itself, as we saw on January 6th. All right, so I'm going to skip ahead to 2012, when Stuart Rhodes was pushing something he called Operation Sleeping Giant. Um, this one, somehow, I missed it at, at the time, um, but I found it interesting. Uh, Rhodes warns of a, a global financial collapse. And again, this uh, goes back to uh, point number three, right? Millenarianism, this coming apocalypse, 
So the nature of this apocalypse consists, you know, continually changing as we find in both secular and religious prepper organizations. Uh, you know, we're, we're not sure what the signs and portents are telling us. But in 2012, Stuart Rhodes was saying global economic collapse. And here's the nature of the economic collapse. Um, he's, he's got this kind of this sort of televangelist thing going on. Like, you know, he's setting the date. He's telling us what's going on uh, and how the global economy has collapsed, is going to collapse and why. Quote, when the Federal Reserve created fiat money system collapses, when the ship sinks, they will then rescue us by sweeping us all on board the UNN Global Leviathan, their final solution of a worldwide version of the Fed out of the IMF, along with world governance. That has been their plan all along, con us into sailing an unseaworthy fiat hulk, sail it into an iceberg, and then rescue us onto their massive prison ship. You think getting rid of the Federal Reserve is tough? Just wait until you are under a world Federal Reserve. End quote. So what he's describing, of course, is, is a, you know, a common libertarian preoccupation with fiat currency. Uh, you know, may have, of course, they'll support going back to the gold standard, perhaps silver. Let's reinvigorate the, the political debates of the 19th century. Uh, or today, let's, let's, you know, let's put it on to crypto, right? Just as long as it's not that nasty fiat currency that has successfully led to more economic growth in the course of the last 100, 200 years than, you know, any other program in, in human history, right? So, but nonetheless, you've got a cabal, a, an elite cabal. Uh, they are the, quote, globalist power elite. And this globalist power elite, we don't know who they are, uh, doesn't really define them, but this globalist power elite want to somehow sucker us into accepting that dastardly fiat money. So there's this conspiracy theory twist to this libertarian attack on fiat money. Um, now, I don't know what this has to do with the orders we will not obey, right? I mean, that's in the Constitution, right? Yet the, the government has a power to coin money. But, and there, there's nothing, you know, uh, that relates it to the sort of, quote, usual things that they're supposed to care about, right? You know, they're supposed to care about, you know, guns and, you know, no, um, fiat currency. You know, that's not one of the orders that, that they're not going to obey. Nonetheless, you know, he's got this whole plan, this Operation Sleeping Giant, centered around this fantasy that the global economy is going to collapse and it's going to be collapsed by a global economic power elite. And there's no actual economic analysis behind any of this, of course, unless you accept assertions and metaphors in the place of evidence, which apparently was good enough for many Oath Keeper readers. And he's absolutely all over the place in terms of the pros on this. He claims that patriots need to board the USS Constitution and somehow wage a naval battle against global elites who are somehow plotting some nefarious economic collapse that is simultaneously going to benefit them despite the fact that they own most of the stuff. That doesn't make sense, right? I mean, the people who own most of the currency are not interested in collapsing the currency. 
Uh, nor, you know, they're interested in economic growth. They're, they're not interested. You know, this is a system that they've constructed that benefits them disproportionately and increasingly benefits them. Uh, you know, the global 1%, right? But nonetheless, they're going to bring it all down. So he constructs this extended metaphor involving the USS Constitution and imagines this metaphorical naval battle um, that's both awkward and contrived. So there's the Constitution, there's, you know, that the frigate, the USS Constitution, and also somehow, in the midst of all this stuff, there's a giant. What? Is this Gulliver's Travels? Quote, Americans' veterans truly are like a sleeping giant. It is time to awaken them and fill them with a terrible resolve to defeat the domestic enemies of our Constitution and their globalist fellow travelers, too. If we wake the veterans up, this republic will be saved. If we don't, then I fear that this republic will fall. If we can't get the veterans to step up and do what must be done to save our republic, then how can we expect to get the rest of our people to do what must be done? So let's wake them up, all caps, so they can help us wake up the whole country and so they can take the lead in restoring this republic and resisting the plans of the enemy, end quote. Now, this call to wake up ought to be familiar to any student of 20th century history. It's used in this context wherein he refers to this secret globalist cabal. Um, you know, I mean, that, that's, that's a phrase that occurs in anti-Semitic propaganda, right? And it's particularly disturbing here. So, you know, wacht auf, right? That's, a, that's an old Nazi slogan. It's not, I mean, and certainly Nazis are not the only people who've ever called for people uh, to wake up. But, you know, so again, you got this hot mess, naval battle, the, the USS uh, Constitution, and somewhere in there, there, there's a giant that is waking up. Um, so he uses this really just kind of uh, fanciful uh, bit, bit of, you know, apocalyptic uh, violence-ridden screed to create what he, a four-point plan. Now, this sleeping giant plan uh, has these following four points, and he's got more unreadable text uh, with them. Uh, but I'll, I'll outline uh, what the four points are that he uh, wants the Oath Keepers to, to participate in. First of which is food, fuel, emergency medical, and communications security, and independence, and general preparedness. That's a lot of ands. Food, fuel, emergency medical, and communication security, and independence, and general preparedness. So that's his first point. So Rose here points to uh, the LDS Church, of course, which mandates that people have a certain amount of survival stuff, uh, you know, hoarding food and other supplies uh, is, is kind of good practice, right? Uh, we, you know, I mean, emergency preparedness is good for us all, uh, but again, you know, this is for a specific globalist cabal uh, preparedness. Um, interesting, he talks about fuel, right? He doesn't appear to understand how the petroleum industry operates. Uh, you're, you're not, you know really going to have your, your fuel independence unless you just ditch petroleum altogether uh, and go with some sort of alternative fuel or just go with horses, right? Horses, uh, you know, 
might be better. Um, I mean, fuel for horses, you know, you just start growing some sweet alfalfa for them. Um, but other than that, you know, anyway, second thing, physical security and independence. So his answer here is pretty straightforward. Militia. Rhodes also conveniently supplies a link to something called the Revolutionary War Veterans Association, which focuses on marketmanship training and is uh, based in North Carolina because, of course, it is. So, uh, you know, train people in marksmanship uh, to have physical security in case the global economy uh, collapses. Um, and by the way, marksmanship isn't some kind of mystical art, right? I mean, most circumstances, you know, it doesn't really require a, a huge amount of training to be able to fire a weapon. No, anyway. Three, economic security and independence. Quote, as individuals and communities, including barter networks, use of silver and gold as real money and sound money bills at the county and state levels, as Utah just passed. So he also encourages members to develop skills that can be used once fiat money collapses and we revert to a barter economy. He's not kidding. So he thinks that the response uh, is going to be a barter economy. And he has a helpful link here too as well, uh, where you can get financial tips and news from another Oath Keeper, one Brandon Smith. That site is still up and running. And uh, he features the same kinds of articles uh, on that site today that the Oath Keepers were running back in 2010 or so when Smith began this as a little side project. I, I don't know uh, whether or not he's still involved with the organization. Um, Smith's page, by the way, today, he's, he was always apparently more prolific than Rhodes himself ever, ever was. But it's just more of the same. Uh, although more race-obsessed, if anything, uh, than, than the Oath Keepers were uh, in the early days. Fourth point, state sovereignty and nullification of unconstitutional federal laws and actions. So state sovereignty and nullification, that's John C. Calhoun, right? Uh, anyone, you know, in the Carolinas or the South would be familiar with that. That's pretty much the Confederacy all over again. Now, Rhodes uh, says, quote, in the fight against the globalist power-mad elites who think they have us pegged, then they have it all figured out. Sorry. In the fight against the globalist power-mad elites who think they have us pegged, think they have it all figured out, and think we are too weak to resist their plans, it's time to give them a lesson in American ingenuity and resolve, end quote. So again, just pure fear-mongering. If you didn't have economic insecurity before, you'd have it by time, the, the time that Rhodes is done with this, right? So uh, the most obvious historical precedent here is with Nazism. Nazis calling on, the, you know, Nazis were calling on the same groups that Rhodes is calling on here to, to wake up. Disaffected military personnel, police, state security, all the various formal and uh, paramilitary servants of the state. This isn't exactly the, uh, the same as the kinds of calls for mobilization that the Nazis issued in the Weimar Republic, but it, it certainly rhymes, right? And also here, what he's doing is to invoke a nostalgia for the economy of the past. Um, you know, again, a lot of these members presumably are getting pension checks from the government. Uh, maybe that, you know, I don't know. Maybe getting monthly checks from the government causes some kind of cognitive dissonance 
in the far-right anti-government mindset. But he's calling for independence from the control of the state and reliance on money and getting back to a pre-monetary economy, the barter system. So politically and economically, he's recalling an earlier age. Maybe in the 19th century? No, no. Uh, economically, uh, he's having us go back even further. Um, this isn't some return to some nostalgic past. It's a return to the Dark Ages. I mean, really, that's how far back you have to go to get to a, a pre-cash economy. Even though, obviously, in the 17th, 18th, uh, 19th centuries, uh, you, you did have you know people who were so cash poor and largely self-sufficient, right? Yeoman farmers, even though that also itself is, is something of a myth. Uh, nonetheless, that's where you have to go to, to, to get where he wants to take us. So this longing for an apocalypse is driven by, you know, what one might say is a, a deep-set psychopathology. And that's something that many analysts of the far right have written about. The bigger the ego, the bigger the gap between one's imagined worth and what one has actually done in the world, the greater the need for the apocalypse. This element is always present in far-right political movements. Part of what's remarkable about Rhodes's work here in this Operation Sleeping Giant uh, program, which doesn't appear to have really gone anywhere, right? The, the global economy collapsed uh, due to fiat currency. Didn't actually happen. Um, nonetheless, it's to just flagrantly steal from Marxism without the scientific trappings or doing any of the hard work. Instead of an inevitable economic collapse that's precipitated by the unsustainability of a capitalist system that relies on economic growth that's impossible given the tendency of the rate of profit to decline over time, it's much easier to say the global economy is going to collapse and the global economic elite is going to do it intentionally. So this is just a dumber, vulgarized, and fascistic version of Marxism. And if you just substitute the phrase capitalist class for the phrase global economic elite, you'll see what I mean. You have to believe in magic for this to make any sense at all. How is it in the interest of a global economic elite, however defined, to crash the system they control? Why would they intentionally destroy the very system that they've rigged to produce outcomes that align with their interest. Wouldn't it be better for them to just manage it better so as to reap the benefits of the system that they've designed to benefit themselves? It doesn't stand up for a moment. But what it does do is to provide an enemy, uh, a reason to dress up and BDUs and uh, think about having an armed standoff with the federal government. They need some kind of apocalypse. They're not sure what kind it is, but Rose uses, uh, you know, borrows from vulgar Marxism and libertarian ideology against uh, fiat currency to create this mythical collapse that is somehow engineered uh, to destroy the economic system by the very people who develop the economic system and benefit the most from it. Um, and this time, by the way, it's interesting to note that for someone who's controlled, concerned so much with fiat currency, Rhodes always seemed to be asking for cash, right? I mean, does he take barter? Does he take gold or silver? Probably yes, or presumably crypto as well. But, you know, if you don't like fiat currency, why are you asking for cash? Um, and so let me the question of uh, the cost of Oath Keeper's membership. 
Now, if you go to the very first Wayback Snapshot of the Oathkeepers.org website in September of 2009, there's this membership offer. $30 a year minimum donation. They don't call it a membership fee for some reason or dues. It's just minimum donation. Weird. If you can give more, please do. That gets you official member status or official associate member status if not current or prior service. Membership certificate suitable for framing. Laminated membership card. Two Oathkeepers bumper stickers and one back window sticker. Color Oathkeepers brochures and Oathkeepers business cards as an outreach startup kit. Additional benefits yet to be determined. So over the time, they would actually add more benefits. Um, these benefits mainly consisted of small reductions in cost to sign up for memberships in other extremist political fringe groups. I was rather surprised to learn that the original Oathkeepers membership was only $30. Um, I'm not sure when o Rhodes increased the membership dues to $50, but I do know this. He more than doubled the rate of increase of inflation. So this is someone who says, you know, oh, the global financial elite, they're doing this inflation. It's dastardly. And yet, if he had merely kept up with inflation, a $30 membership in 2009 should only cost $38.99 in 2021. Um, so, you know, you're clearly part of the problem, right? Uh, or, you know, maybe it's not inflation, maybe it's just grift. And again, no information, no, not even, uh, you know, for someone who expresses interest in alternative economic arrangements, uh, there's nothing about, you know, bartering for your annual membership renewal. All right, so let's take a moment now to uh, go over the halcyon days of the Oath Keepers, the period when they were most active, doing the thing that Rhodes apparently liked to do the most, staging armed events, oftentimes confronting agents of the federal government in various activities, mainly in the American West. I won't go into any real, de real detail here. Each of these, could, you could do a podcast of their own, uh, you know, just detailing the actual uh, confrontation and standoff. Uh, again, mainly due to time constraints, I think I'm probably going to go long already just based on the length of the script. But this is the most widely publicized phase in Oath Keepers history. So uh, you had the Bundy Ranch standoff in Clark County, Nevada from April 2014 to May 2014. You had the Sugar Pine Mine standoff in Josephine County, Oregon from April to May 2015. You had the White Hope Mine Patrol in Lewis and Clark County, Montana in August of 2015. And you had the Malheur National Wildlife Refuge standoff in January and February of 2016. Each of these standoffs was complicated. Uh, they, they involved various political tensions between Oath Keepers and law enforcement, the federal law enforcement, local Oath uh, law enforcement, and also between the Oath Keepers National Organization and various local Oath Keepers, as well as between Oath Keepers and other paramilitary patriot gangs. Now, in addition to these, uh, as mentioned earlier, the Oath Keepers also took to the streets to intervene in the wake of the extrajudicial police killings of Michael Brown in 2014 and also George Floyd in 2020. And at various times, they claimed to protect local businesses, but at various other times, they also uh, said they were there to defend protesters. 
and they've also participated in a variety of other activities, including responses to various natural disasters and claims to be providing security at different political events, including, as we'll see, Trump rallies. They've also been involved in events that focus on neo-Confederate activity. Again, that is one of the core beliefs of the, the Oath Keepers. They believe in secession, and they would not take arms against states that, um, you know, uh, or they'll secede from the Union, despite the fact that the reference and the oath to which they love to make reference all the time only comes from the Civil War fight against the secessionist slaveholding South, uh, a historical singularity that they just tend to overlook. So some of this neo-Confederate activity included uh, Pikesville, Kentucky in 2017, and also in Gettysburg, Pennsylvania. Um, some of this has been directed by roads at the national organizational level and also by various state and local chapters of the Oath Keepers. Now, I wanted to explore a bit of what source of material was appearing on the OathKeepers.org website in the Trump era. By this point, Rhodes, who was already, as I mentioned, not terribly prolific, was far less present on the Oath Keepers website. In fact, he's pretty much disappeared almost altogether. The number of pages filled with articles at this point stretched into the hundreds. There were hundreds of pages, and the articles themselves are more varied, and they're on more varied topics. Um, and the Oath Keepers were still regularly featuring content from other sources. And indeed, it's probably a majority of the content at this point. Uh, there's one person who has one byline, and uh, her job is apparently to just sort of rip off these articles from other places, presumably under some kind of license or agreement, and then uh, append her byline, someone else's byline to it. Uh, and Rhodes hardly ever appears at all. Now, instead of going into the comments section to find a link to InfoWars, uh, which is what you had to do you know, early on, uh, at this point, there's content directly posted from InfoWars. So you can get your Alex Jones nonsense without ever having to no navigate away from the Oath Keepers website itself. Some of the staples of the Oath Keepers site, such as the 10 orders we will not obey and the dedication to Rose's father-in-law, uh, are still there. They're all omnipresent on the website. And there are a few more buttons on the website. But despite these minor changes, it doesn't really have the look or feel of a page that's designed in the mid-teens of the 21st century. It was already kind of retro when the, the page came out back in 2009. And by the mid-1990s, uh, you know, I mean, it, it, it really is a page that's always reminiscent of the mid-1990s in terms of the web design. Um, and by the Trump era, this retro look seems even more out of date, despite the presence of ever more content. And uh, with regard to that content itself, uh, the conspiratorialism has gone from uh, implausible to absolutely hysterical. So here's an article that they put forward from InfoWars that gives you a bit of a flavor. Invasion 21, UN document plans people replacement war against West. Globalist agenda to overthrow Western society exposed by David Knight, InfoWars.com, July 22nd, 2017. A United Nations document from 2000 exposes the great people replacement as their final solution. Offered as a solution for the unsustainable entitlement states of Europe, it is now being implemented by the EU superstate as refugee quotas. But it's not about responding to unforeseen tragedies and wars that create refugees. 
David Knight breaks down the UN's plan for a 21st century invasion and subjugation of the West. And that's it. That's all the text. And then what they have is a video from InfoWars featuring David Knight. And that video itself is based on an article that appeared, guess where, WorldNet Daily. So you've got your little paramilitary cocoon. You're in the summer of 2017. Trump's been elected. He's making America great again. And you're watching a video on the Oath Keepers website that they took from InfoWars Info that they took from an article from WorldNet Daily. So this is, this is like a closed ecosystem. This is like an information terrarium. And Nancy Oakley, uh, who's the person who, at this point, appears to be, be posting most of these articles uh, from other sites, also gets a byline, as does David Knight. And what's the actual content? The actual content, of course, is The Great Replacement. So they've gone full from uh, orders we will not obey to openly embracing the most asinine racist conspiracy theories imaginable. Um, and I was actually surprised when I looked at the, 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 uh, the video on the uh, Wayback Machine that it actually played, um, thanks to the magic of the Wayback Machine. Uh, it's a lot of times though, you, you'll look for these videos and you'll find that the account's been removed, um, but it actually runs well on the archived page, uh, which not everything on archived pages will, thanks to issues with plugins and, and other things. So I had thought to actually play some of the video for you, but if you're listening here, you already know what the great replacement theory is. So no need to, you know, not that they, they need my amplification, but I'm not going to do that. Uh, you know, and it's just basically regurgitating the same nonsense. The theory here is not that this global cabal is going to crash the economy now. No, no, no. The idea is that there's this global cabal of elites, in this instance, headed by the United Nations, that's working to replace people in Western nations with immigrants based on deliberate misinterpretation of a UN program originally meant for sustainable development. And this isn't the only article like this, actually. The Oath Keepers have, by this point in 2017, expanded their scope to embrace all kinds of far-right stuff internationally. Uh, interestingly, they, they take the kind of turn uh, that... Uh, Chief Sergeant, Master Off Sergeant Page was talking about, they are more often focusing on international news. So, for example, in January 2018, there's a link to a video by Dr. Steve Turley entitled, Poland and Hungary Stand United Against Brussels. Of course it's Poland and Hungary, right? You know, Turley himself is far from any kind of constitutionalist or libertarian. He's a Christo-fascist. Uh, and no surprise... He's approved, you know, approving of the most authoritarian far-right regimes in Europe. Now, the 2009 Oath Keepers site wouldn't really care about Euroscepticism. That wasn't really a theme that they were talking about. They weren't talking about Poland and Hungary. But by 2018, this kind of content is actually crowding out the kinds of things that used to be the bread and butter of the Oath Keepers. The libertarian noises that Rhodes used to make, the nonpartisan posturing that he adopted at the beginning of the movement, is entirely gone, as is Rhodes himself, right? So there's more space that's being offered to a series of raffles for guns uh, rather than, you know, this ideological content that, you know, be, that would really, you know, merge um, apocalyptic narratives with, uh, you know, some sort of uh, libertarian political philosophy grafted onto it. 
There's raffles for guns, which was probably like a good earner for Rhodes. And at this stage in the, the, the late teens, the only time that Rhodes actually writes something is to ask for money. Uh, so I'll give an example of one of these. On December 17th, 2019, Rhodes asked for donations to protect Trump supporters. He's gone from being nonpartisan and skeptical of government to volunteering the services of the Oath Keepers to act as armed goons at political events for the incumbent president. And in this article, he claims that Trumpists are under danger of attack. Quote, Oath Keepers has now deployed volunteer security escort teams to nine Trump rallies this year. And counting, number 10 is Wednesday, December 18th in Battle Creek, Michigan. And we will be at all future Trump rallies as well. Our men protect, protect Trump rally attendees from violent assault by leftist extremists, such as Antifa. We have directly disabled, disabled veterans, women, and children from assault and have deterred other attempted assaults. So, yeah, and we claim again that, that you know, Antifa is out there assaulting children at Trump rallies as if they don't have anything better to do. Uh, a bit later, quote, the interiors of the Trump venues themselves are safe, protected by the Secret Service and local police. But when the rally attendees walk back to their vehicles in the dark after the rally, that is when they are vulnerable to violent assault by hate-filled, rad violent, radical leftists. Trump's supporters have been spit on, punched, kicked, assaulted with clubs, and had their MAGA hats stolen off their heads and their American flags stolen and burned. Anytime Trump supporters must walk through the streets around a rally venue, they are vulnerable to attack. End quote. So this is the fusion of the strategy of othering with a fundraising strategy, right? It's almost reflective. Right? It's reflective strategy, reflexive strategy. Uh, Rhodes has used the same strategy to grow the movement and radicalize members and also using it uh, for special fundraising appeals, right? That $50 membership, it's not enough. Now you need to give them money to send them to Trump rallies to, uh, you know, defend uh, Trump supporters. And, you know, again, painting the Trump supporters as, as victims, as if there were widespread attacks by, uh, you know, I don't know, the, the nefarious global cabal, Antifa, who, somebody. Um, here, here's more from the same article. Quote, our track record is impeccable because we send in armed off-duty and retired police officers along with armed military veterans. We provide a very competent, credible deterrent to Antifa-type violence while also respecting the rights of capitals, everyone, including the leftist protesters. Our men remain cool, calm, collected, quiet professionals who do not engage in shouting matches with the leftist protesters. They focus on keeping people safe, period. And so far, Antifa has not closed with us on the streets. Our deterrence works. Of course, it could be that this deterrence works because the attacks that Rhodes claims were rampant never actually happened in the first place. It's interesting. Why are you going to these Trump rallies? What about Biden rallies, right? Don't they need your security as well? No. Uh, they're just doing this, again, to raise, make more publicity for the movement, 
and of course, so that Rhodes himself can personally grift off of these donations, which he doesn't disclose to anyone. There's there's no little little thermometer there saying we need ten thousand dollars. We have no idea how much money, how much grifting Rhodes was able to do, how much money he was able to take from his extremely gullible membership uh, to fund God knows what kind of activities, you know, um, whatever his, his own personal proclivities might be. So at this point, um, you know, this is just sort of, uh, there's a continuum, right? You can draw a direct line from his, you know, the involvement with these Trump rallies ultimately winds up culminating in the kind of political violence we see later. Um, you know, yeah, to the extent that their track record is impeccable during all these standoffs, it's mainly because the Department of Justice seemed to avoid pressing charges wherever they could, uh, as if they thought doing so would somehow result in uh, less kinds of confrontational threats if they, you know, just didn't confront the violence. That wasn't overall, in hindsight, a particularly effective strategy, right? Uh, if you look at the kinds of violence the Oath Keepers allegedly engage in on January 6th, you know, not much that was done in the years from 2014 onward uh, by the Department of Justice uh, appeared to dissuade them at all. In fact, it probably emboldened them. Um, and again, you know, political violence, we, I don't even have to say alleged political violence anymore, right? Graydon Young, Mark Grodz, Caleb Berry, and Jason Dolan all pleaded guilty in January 6th cases, all the felony counts. So I don't have to say allegedly anymore, right? The Oath Keepers is an organization that engages in political violence. Oath Keepers have been convicted at this point of political violence. So that brings me full circle to the disposition of cases. Dozens of Oath Keepers have been charged in the January 6th attack, and their membership uh, seems to be easy to identify and document uh, in the January 6th attack as they were very fond of wearing military gear, and oftentimes just prominently displayed Oathkeeper logos. Unlike the Proud Boys, who you know, don't wear colors, will dress like Antifa, even though I don't even know what Antifa dress is like. They, they apparently don't either. Um, they had Oathkeeper logos. And we don't actually know how many Oathkeepers ultimately will be arrested. Uh, there is, you know, this central group, of course, but that doesn't mean that there weren't other people in the mob who were ultimately uh, inspired by or motivated by uh, the website. Uh, and other Oath Keepers propaganda. Uh, according to the Department of Justice, of course, there are two, uh, you know, three main groups of Oath Keepers at the Capitol on January 6th. Um, and these are the ones who are, you know, charged as core institutional groups in the accounts. So there's one from Florida, one from Ohio, and one from North Carolina. Uh, the disposition of the North Carolina Oath Keepers is one that's still a little bit questionable. Uh, they appear to have balked at the plan to storm the Capitol, and uh, they declared that the whole operation was a disgrace, and they subsequently disbanded in the wake of January 6th, although apparently it, it may be some kind of rebrand uh, on their part, and they're just uh, becoming their own state-level organization. Now, it seems unlikely they'll, they're going to face charges, but you never know, um, and you don't know to what extent they're cooperating. Uh, and, of course, there's, you know, the matter of Ray Epps, right, former president of the Arizona chapter, uh, who uh, many on the far right are uh, fond of pointing out, the, you know, hasn't been charged because, you know, he didn't do anything other than be in a restricted area 
and everything else he did was apparently free speech. Although at one point, if you look at the video, it does appear that Epps uh, laid a hand on a Trump sign that was a large Trump sign, like it was a giant metal sign that was used to attack uh, police. Uh, but apparently the DOJ has uh, determined that it's not enough to, to charge him with anything. Although again, you never ever know. Many of the people who are calling for charges for Ray Epps, yeah, maybe, maybe it'll, it'll happen eventually. Then there's a the question of someone called Person 10 in the Oath Keepers charging documents who has been identified as Mike Simmons, uh, who's acting as the operations leader, according to the indictment. Now, Simmons claims that he doesn't support either Biden or Trump and that his involvement in the insurrection was somehow professional and that he was providing security, which, as we've seen, is a common Oath Keepers tactic uh, that they use to describe their activities. Now... There's been some reporting that Simmons may have been selected by Rhodes to act as a, a kind of a patsy. Um, but one of the key things you would want from a patsy is that, that they get charged and you don't. Whereas, deliciously, the opposite is true here, right? Uh, the, the operational commander who was there with Rhodes when they, they uh, rallied the Oath Keepers before renewing their assault, uh, he doesn't get charged, but Rhodes himself of course, has been charged as the central figure in the seditious conspiracy indictment. Now, the whole universe of January 6 cases is complex, and the Oath Keepers cases are even more so. Uh, there have been multiple superseding indictments, and cases are being brought in several different ways. So some of the Oath Keepers are being charged individually, uh, but the main two cases are against two sets of Oath Keepers. Uh, there was the fifth superseding indictment, uh, that's been, you know, and now su superseded by a sixth six superseding indictment. So the group that includes includes Rhodes today in that sixth superseding indictment, the seditious conspiracy indictment, has a total of 11 individuals named, and they also face conspiracy to obstruct an official proceeding. And in fact, there's a grand total of 17 counts, not all of which apply to every named individual. Now, as I mentioned in the first episode of the second season, there are many historical reasons why they might not have charged seditious conspiracy. But they've gone ahead with it, and they've got conspiracy to obstruct an official proceeding as a backup plan, and that's been uh, upheld by, you know, the obstruction charge has been upheld by multiple judges uh, at D.C. at the present time. So it's only, you know, uh, one step away to just charge the uh, the seditious conspiracy charge and then reserve that one and see which felony winds up uh, getting convictions. In any case, um, you know, they, they might have some problems with the, that pesky element of intent, but the, the obstruction count is pretty clear. And uh, that leaves eight other Oath Keepers who are charged in, in two other cases. So, um, when you had that fifth superseding indictment, there are Oath Keepers that are named at that uh, who aren't included in the sixth one, that that case is also going to move forward. Now, that's not the real universe of Oath Keepers at the insurrection, of course. There are other Oath Keepers at the Capitol, some charged, some uncharged, um, but they don't appear to be directly associated with the centrally planned and executed part of the attack that was read by, led by Rhodes, Simmons, Watkins, uh, the Megses, the couple from Florida, et cetera, and so forth. Uh, and any one of these figures, by the way, you know, you could do an episode on them. I'm not going to do an episode on each of them. I've been focusing on Rhodes and his political ideas. I just wanted to briefly outline 
uh, the charges in the six superseding indictment. So I think most people who are listening are probably over familiar with the overall scheme of what's charged in those indictments. And um, I'll just quickly summarize it. So the, the charges uh, allege that the Oath Keepers began conspiring immediately after Trump's election to prevent uh, his loss, rather, to prevent the peaceful transfer of power using encrypted private communications, the details of which are contained in the indictments, and with, that they also ultimately planned to bring weapons, which they did, and they had QRFs ready to go. Uh, some of them, you know, back in the hotels, including uh, one in Arlington, and uh, some of them perhaps in, in the trunk of a vehicle. Um, but they were functionally subdivided into units. And they brought other members into the conspiracy uh, in the lead-up to the attack, and they took part in paramilitary training in an effort to prepare themselves, uh, and they collectively assembled various bits of military kit which they felt that they would need to carry out the attack, and they also executed a coordinated assault on the Capitol in an effort to breach the building, uh, the well-known stack, right, of which there you know, were two uh, main stacks of Oath Keepers on January 6th. And they did this with the aid of other gang members and other the violent mob itself. And it was, you know, of course, even facilitated by the people in the mob who didn't commit acts of violence, right? Uh, which is, you know, important. They ultimately attacked from both sides. Two, there were two stacks, one attacking from the east, one attacking through the west at different points in time. And we didn't get to see the full execution of the whole plan. Now, this part is speculative. Uh, I believe that, you know, there is a plan to occupy the capital at some time and perhaps even to hold Congress hostage until such time as they either certified the election of Trump uh, or fraudulent electors could be mobilized by Republican state legislatures. Uh, so in the last indictment, one of the defendants who was added to it, uh, Vallejo, uh, he's quoted by saying that they, in the indictment, saying they have food for 30 days, which of course, that's, you don't need that, right? But they have food for 30 days. You know, you wouldn't need that if you only plan to remain in the Capitol for that afternoon or evening. So, you know, something else is definitely up with that. One part of the allegations that seems to be overlooked is that, uh, you know, much of the reporting is what those stacks were trying to do, right? Um, this is significant to the question of a broader conspiracy. Different groups who attacked the Capitol appear to have different jobs. Uh, and you, you look at, you know, what they did on the day. So you have the Proud Boys who leave much earlier than anyone else. They act as a kind of a vanguard directly attacking the Capitol and uh, causing the very first breach. You have all the various megaphone people who seem to act as something like marshals for the crowd. Um, you have Zeker Bozell, uh, that Elbrant Bozell IV, whose father runs the uh, Media Research Center and is well-connected in uh, far-right circles in Washington, D.C., who's on the phone with someone and goes inside moves cameras in the Senate chamber and then is on the phone with someone and, and exits the building, which, again, is suspicious given the fact that you know what his father does, right? His father has critiqued the media. He sends his son in, or I'm sorry, um, his son goes in, uh, and then, of course, uh, Zeker Bozell's father, Elbrant Bozell, Bozell III, winds up being a signatory to a document that says that uh, Congress should should... Uh, reject the, quote, fake, you know, uh, election results and impose their own, uh, you know, accept these fraudulent electors from, from different states. And that was in December, right? So, you know, that 
is pretty suspect. But again, functional subdivision. You have people who are also assaulting the media, uh, mainly as fake right, far right journalists uh, who are attacking real journalists, right? So there, it looks like there are different people who are doing different jobs. And so it raises the question of what the job of these Oath Keeper stacks was. That would be central to the plot if there was someone who's assigning different jobs. The Oath Keepers themselves, um, you know, they're like the tanks of the insurrection. They're ideologically committed. They're more reliable, better trained, and better equipped than other members of the mob. So if there was some sort of central agent, we would expect them to be assigned a rather important job. Now, that's the part that I'm adding here that I think a lot of the reporting is overlooked. The job that was assigned or volunteered to the Oath Keepers um, by whatever central agent there was, if there was one, um, you know, that's actually stated in in the government's case itself. And it may not be a surprise to some of you the, uh, if you've been keeping up with this and been reading the indictments. The job that is alleged that the, the Oath Keepers wanted to do on January 6th, um, they intended to execute, what they intended to execute inside the Capitol was to find Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi. The formation identified as Stack 1 in the indictment winds up splitting up one half of the stack winds up getting ejected by the police. Thank you so much for your service. Uh, and the other stack uh, winds up looking for Nancy Pelosi. And we know that because they said that's what they were doing. So this functional subdivision of the attack, um, you know, it might be a key to the story of the larger conspiracy. I think it's more than this some um, paranoid extremist obsession with Pelosi herself. They were looking to interfere with the line of presidential secession, and she's number three in that line. So that's an interesting question that I think the media has overlooked. The Oath Keepers said they want to attack Nancy Pelosi. They wanted to get their hands on Nancy Pelosi. Many other people did, but this is far credible because we know they went in with a plan. Now, what are the end game was? They didn't get to execute it because the mob never established total control of the Capitol. They were ejected by, by police. So they didn't get to deploy those QRF forces to bring in weapons. Perhaps because Trump never asked them to. We don't know. They were actually in direct communication with anyone. Um, and, you know, they didn't have a chance to possibly settle in for an occupation that they might have needed that 30 days worth of food with. But, again, why, why would we think they're, they're settling in for an occupation? Look at everything else they did from 2014 onwards, right? That's what this group does. They occupy places. They engaged with armed standoffs with law enforcement. They brought weapons. They brought 30 days worth of food. They were ready for an armed occupation of the Capitol. And the only thing that's different here is it's in D.C. It's at the Capitol building, the head of one of the three branches of government, the legislative branch. And they've got members of hostage that they want to take captive and hold them hostage until Trump gets installed. And we know that they plan to uh, look for you know Nancy Pelosi because that's what they were doing. That's what they said they were doing according to the seditious conspiracy indictment. So, yeah, we, we don't, you know, we, we don't know exactly what the plan was, but that's, that's one hypothesis. So that also hints at the possibility of moving up the food chain. If the Oath Keepers are more directly connected to the, assuming there is a central planner, Trump and his universe, uh, of the attack, the Oath Keepers offer a direct link between the attack on the Capitol itself 
and the, the, the things are outlined in the Eastman memo, right? And Stuart Rhodes is himself personally connected to uh, Republican officialdom in Washington, D.C. Uh, he has connections in you know, the right-wing movement and also established you know, the, what we might call uh, the far-right Republican political establishment. And there's, there's evidence that points to this, right? Not just um, the functional subdivision which, with which they, they may have taken apart. So, um, you know, if you look at the MAGA era, you know, that D.C., the Republican establishment, includes people who are connected to the corridors of power. And you can see that, right? This link that it leads up to a 2020 campaign, you know, all the way up to January 6th. Uh, and you can see that other activities that the Oath Keepers engage in. One of the stories I think that, that hasn't received perhaps enough attention is that in late November 2021, in the state of Georgia, Oath Keepers appeared outside the home of Georgia Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger. And they claimed that they were there to protect him from BLM, you know, much like they, they would have uh, claimed if they had had the chance, you know, that they were there to uh, protect the Capitol uh, from Antifa, right? So... You know, this is a coordinated campaign, and it goes on, you know, according to the charging documents, right, immediately following the election uh, of Joe Biden. And, uh, you know, the goal at that time becomes to prevent the inauguration of Joe Biden, prevent the certification of the electoral votes, and to install Donald Trump as something, a dictator for life, uh, you know, call himself a president. We don't know. So hopefully the House Select Committee to investigate the January 6th attack and the Department of Justice are going to take an interest in these kinds of activities and look deeply into the question of whether or not these were coordinated from the Trump White House, right? So it's not an accident that you see you know, Mike Simmons, uh, you know, escorting um, Roger Stone, right? So there are connections directly between the Oath Keepers and people who are, it is alleged, uh, you know, present right there, uh, you know, engaged in the, the shenanigans or the seditious conspiracy plot. And once you have, you know, if these charges are upheld, if they wind up getting convicted, hey, guess what? The seditious conspiracy can be broader than just what's charged in this one. One of the things that's interesting in a complex case such as this is to compare and contrast the language that the government uses in the charging documents. And that's what we'll be doing in the final segment here. Now, in some of the earlier episodes, I highlighted the kind of language that the government uses to describe various gangs. Once an organization starts doing crimes and is charged for those crimes, the government may decide to start crafting a special paragraph just for the purposes of describing the criminal organization. And that description serves as the basis for the text that's used in the next case, the next time the organization gets busted for committing a crime. As new relevant information that the government wants to introduce into the record is introduced, this boilerplate text tends to get longer. The text that's used for long-standing gangs can run to several pages. The last time I talked about this, I used an example from a gangster disciples indictment. This time, I'll go uh, with an example from uh, a recent indictment from New York City from September 21st, uh, an indictment featuring 15 men, including Andrew Russo, alleged head of the Colombo family, underboss Benjamin Vaclaw, Castellazzo, and Theodore Persico Jr., who is uh, the nephew of longtime Colombo boss Carmine Persico, and 12 other people. 
So here's the beginning of the description of the Colombo crime family. Quote, the Enterprise. One, the Colombo organized crime family of La Cosa Nostra, including its leaders, members, and associates, constituted an enterprise, as defined in Title 18, United States Code, Section 1961. That is, a group of individuals associated, in fact, hereafter, the Colombo crime family and the Enterprise. The Enterprise constituted an ongoing organization whose members functioned as an on-continuing unit for the common purpose of achieving the objectives of the Enterprise. The Colombo crime family engaged in, and its activities affected, interstate and foreign commerce. The Colombo crime family is an organized criminal group that operated in the Eastern District of New York and elsewhere. La Cosa Nostra operated through organized crime families. Five of these crime families the Bonanno, Colombo, Gambino, Genovese, and Lucchese crime families were headquartered in New York City and supervised criminal activity in New York, other areas of the United States, and in some instances in other countries. Another crime family, the De Calavente crime family, operated principally in New Jersey, but from time to time also in New York City. End quote. Now, this description, this boilerplate language, uh, builds on earlier indictments, uh, goes on for three more pages but it gives you some of the flavor of what this kind of description of a criminal group reads like in an indictment. The government will take some time to detail the structure of the group and the character of its criminal activities. But part of the problem here is that the government has failed to vigorously prosecute previous cases involving the Oath Keepers. There's no set boilerplate language included in the charging documents describing Oath Keepers as a criminal organization even though this is certainly not the first time that Oath Keepers has been engaged in activities that has resulted in criminal charges against individual Oath Keeper members. There are legitimate constitutional concerns, too, with the freedom of speech and association that have probably made the government somewhat reluctant to include this kind of language in the past, but in my opinion, they've been far too reluctant. They've missed an opportunity, and they're far too willing to accept the peaceful, nonpartisan narrative around the Oath Keepers that Rhodes has woven over the years. So now I'm going to read some of the different documents that contain this kind of paragraph in reference to the Oath Keepers and in reference to January 6th. I'm going to do it sequentially to see what changes in the text can tell us about the evolution of the government's case. The first is an affidavit in support of criminal complaint in Caldwell, Crowell, and Watkins' case dated January 19th, 2021. Obviously, th with this many changes, the defendants are, are going to wind up ultimately changing as well, but the text about the Oath Keepers is basically the same uh, going forward with a few revisions. And so I'm going to look at the revisions here. Quote, the Oath Keepers. Law enforcement and news media organizations observed that members of a paramilitary organization known as the Oath Keepers were among the individuals and groups who forcibly entered the U.S. Capitol on January 6, 2021. The Oath Keepers are a large but loosely organized collection of militia who believe that the federal government has been co-opted by a shadowy conspiracy that is trying to strip American citizens of their rights. Though the Oath Keepers will accept anyone as members, what differentiates them from other anti-government groups is their explicit focus on recruiting current and former military, law enforcement, and first responder personnel. The organization's name alludes to the oath sworn by members of the military and police to defend the Constitution, quote, from all enemies, foreign and domestic, end quote. All right, 
So now I'm going to compare that text to the text of the first superseding indictment, which added a slew of defendants, uh, defendants, but also changed this paragraph rather subtly. It's dated February 19th, 2021. The Oath Keepers Militia. Law enforcement and news media organizations observed that members of an organization known as the Oath Keepers were among the individuals and groups who forcibly entered the Capitol on January 6, 2021. The Oath Keepers are a large but loosely organized collection of individuals, some of whom are associated with militias. Some of the members of the Oath Keepers believe that the federal government has been co-opted by a cabal of elites actively trying to strip American citizens of their rights. Though the Oath Keepers will accept anyone as members, they explicitly focus on recruiting current and former military law enforcement and first responder personnel. The organization's name alludes to the oath sworn by members of the military and police to defend the Constitution from all enemies, foreign and domestic. The Oath Keepers are led by Person 1. So, the first change is that the Oath Keepers are described as a militia in the header, right? Uh, in the original document, they aren't. And then uh, the next one, they are. They're described as the Oath Keepers militia as opposed to the Oath Keepers. Now, this is odd, considering that the text that follows stipulates that, quote, some of whom are associated with militias. You can see the problem here. The government is calling the Oath Keepers a militia while simultaneously claiming that only some Oath Keepers are associated with militias. They're going to fix that later uh, in other indictments. And they also change this. Quote, the Oath Keepers are a large but loosely organized collection of militia who believe that the federal government has been co-opted by a shadowy conspiracy that is trying to strip American citizens of their rights, they change that to this. The Oath Keepers are a large but loosely organized collection of individuals, some of whom are associated with militias. Some members of the Oath Keepers believe that the federal government has been co-opted by a cabal of elites actively trying to strip American citizens of their rights. Neither one of these seems adequate to me. The Oath Keepers use the word militia to confer upon themselves a legitimacy they don't deserve because that word is used in the Constitution. Militias are, by definition, sanctioned by the states. Uh, Oath Keepers are a voluntary rabble. They're not a militia. They also add the qualification that some members believe in a conspiracy, and they change the wording used to describe the conspiracy from a shadowy conspiracy to a cabal of elites. At no point does the government attempt to define which cabal of elites the Oath, Keeper believe, Oath Keepers believe are plotting to strip people of their rights. Again, the Oath Keepers really don't do that themselves. They also make another change. From this, though the Oath Keepers will accept anyone as members, what differentiates them from other anti-government groups is their explicit focus on recruiting current and former military, law enforcement, and first responder personnel to this. Though the Oath Keepers will accept anyone as members, they explicitly focus on recruiting current and former military, law enforcement, and first responder personnel. The organization's name alludes to the oath sworn by members of the military to, uh, and police to defend the Constitution from all enemies, foreign and domestic. The Oath Keepers are led by Person 1. So, first off, obviously, Person 1, right? They've added that because they're adding... Uh, they're going to add Stuart Rhodes, ultimately, to the indictment. So that shows, really, that they intended to add Rhodes. And most of us realized at the time 
that they intended to eventually, at some point down the line, add Stuart Rhodes. They've also made a very reasonable change, changing the phrase differentiates them from other anti-government groups. So why does that matter? Well, it doesn't actually do it. Other anti-government groups also regularly focus on recruiting current and former military police and first responder personnel. It doesn't differentiate them at all. And that goes all the way back to the Klan, by the way, right? Far-right extremists, uh, you know, have always done this. Uh, and they certainly did that, for example, in Weimar, Germany. All right, so let's go to the latest version, the seditious conspiracy indictment. The most notable change is that the header is gone. Okay, now again, you, you see that in, in the La Cosa Nostra uh, Colombo crime family indictment, right? There's this header, the Enterprise, uh, in, in the uh, first sets of indictments and the super, subsequent superseding indictments, uh, you see this, the Oath Keepers header is gone. It's gone in the sixth superseding indictment. Quote, Rhodes, a resident of Granbury, Texas, was the founder and leader of the Oath Keepers, a large but loosely organized collection of individuals, some of whom are associated with militias. Some members of the Oath Keepers believe that the federal government has been co-opted by a cabal of elites actively trying to strip American citizens of their rights. Though the Oath Keepers will accept anyone as members, they explicitly focus on recruiting current and former military, law enforcement, and first responder personnel. The organization's name alludes to the oath sworn by members of the military and police to defend the Constitution from all enemies, foreign and domestic. On their website, the Oath Keepers declare they will not obey unconstitutional orders. Uh, and they put that last bit in quotes, right? So, um, personally, I would have qualified that, right? Orders that they claim are unconstitutional uh, would have been a better formulation. But, uh, again, several things have changed. First, they're no longer claiming that the Oath Keepers are, in fact, a militia at all. That's how they've resolved that. They have dropped the language. They have adopted my position, right, that the Oath Keepers are not a, themselves a militia. There are members who are associated with militias, but the Oath Keepers itself is not, in fact, a militia. Um, secondly, they've uh, also gotten rid of this format that they use in gang prosecutions. And that tells us a lot. So, to my mind, getting rid of the word militia is a more accurate description of what the Oath Keepers are, how they're actually organized and what they actually do. What they call militias, I call terrorist cells. Watkins, for example, was there as an Oath Keeper, but also in her capacity as a group she calls the Ohio Regular Militia. This militia component would give the Oath Keepers, as an organization, some measure of plausible deniability, as well as compartmentalization. So, you know... I'm happy that they've done it in that part, but I'm a bit angry that they've, they've, they've gotten rid of the header and the, the signs and indications that they uh, are going to, you know, leave the door open in future instances of treating the Oath Keepers as a criminal organization. Um, but after my anger subsided, another possibility occurred to me. What if the reason that they got rid of this format, format uh, that they used to describe criminal organizations isn't because they don't believe that the Oath Keepers aren't a criminal organization, but rather because they don't think that the Oath Keepers are going to be any kind of organization moving forward. So could be that they think they're done. Could be that they think that they're completely taken down 
the Oath Keepers, that things are going to happen, that, you know, regardless of what happens at the state level, uh, that the Oath Keepers, as a national organization, are no longer going to exist. And to my mind, that is a very hopeful possibility. Uh, it may be too optimistic, um, but, you know, that at least to, uh, seems to be reasonable, a reasonable supposition. All right. So thanks so much for your time and your listenership. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions, please don't hesitate to send them to me on Twitter at CapInsurrep, C-A-P-I-N-S-U-R-R-E-P. Until next time, I'm Scott Kuhn. Bye for now.